Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I have a special guest. Tom Beekbain is back on the show. We are going to be discussing his book, How to Understand Everything, Consilience, A New Way to See the World. In addition to that, we are going to comment on the bottom-up versus top-down approach at looking at science in the world. We're going to be discussing the nervous system of mammals and other creatures. We're going to talk a little bit about polyvagal theory and trauma-informed counseling. We're going to discuss tribalism, anxiety, and the current emotional and political climate as well. It's going to be a rousing discussion, and we really hope you love it. A little bit about Tom Beekbane. He is the president of a brand marketing company in Toronto, Canada. With an honors degree in biochemistry and neurophysiology from Durham University in England, he was puzzled by the gap between textbook theories of human behavior and his experience creating business communications. He worked on closing that gap by tapping into developments at the frontiers of science, explained in his book, How to Understand Everything, Consilience, A New Way to See the World. Before we get to the interview, just a little bit about what I'm up to. I am now a fully approved EMDR International Association consultant, which means that if you are getting EMDR trained and want to become EMDR certified, I can help you in that process. More details can be found on my website. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcoming back to the podcast, Tom Beekbain. Welcome to the Intentional Clinician. Hey, Paul. Great to be here. Absolutely. And I know we had quite a few downloads uh, of your last uh, time you were on the show, episode 69, where we really talked about everything, but uh, from the view of consilience, which Mm. is the subtitle of your book, How to Understand Everything um, and Consilience. So I, I know people have probably heard that episode. If they haven't, they should go listen to it. But perhaps we should just do a real quick recap of uh, what is, uh, in your words, consilience. Okay. Consilience is a strange word because it hasn't been used much. And everyone imagines, or tends to imagine, that it's all about coming to agreement. Um, uh, but, but that's not the, the origin of the word. The origin of the word uh, is from 1840. It was coined by a fellow called William Hewell. And it, it, it's a compound of the Latin word cilians, which means to jump, and com, which means together. So it's the jumping together of, um, of ideas. Uh, and in my sort of way of thinking, it, it's that feeling that you get when you start to understand something, like two ideas, like sort of gel. It's that uh-huh moment. But I, I also use it um, in, the, in the sense that um, Edward O. Wilson uh, used it. And he, he's a scientist who unfortunately passed away just a week or two back. Um, uh, he, he was a, a, a Harvard professor, uh, an ecologist, a humanitarian, and, and a brilliant writer. And he wrote a book um, about consilience. And in his mind, consilience was going to happen when science, when scientists figured out everything in the world, including how humans think and, and, and behave. And, and how to explain art from a, an evolutionary standpoint. And, and so I use consilience not exactly in the same way that, that he uses it, because I think, I think that science isn't doing that and is not going to do that. Um, 
in my way of thinking, uh, consilience is the jumping together of lots of different disciplines. So it's not only the jumping together of physics and chemistry because they've, in, in, in essence, they've merged um, and they've merged with biology and genetics, but also they've sort of merged in with anthropology and archaeology. Um, but I think that now we know enough about the, the, the workings of the human brain in a very matter-of-fact way that it enables us to understand how we move, how we talk, uh, uh, how we understand. Uh, and that means that we can start to um, figure out how science and art and religion and belief and, and on all of these different realms uh, are sort of snapping together. There's no longer sort of clear delineation uh, clear separation between all of these different disciplines. So consilience, in my way of thinking, is this remarkable time in history now when science is now uh, meshing together with the humanities and it's enabling us to understand, for instance, what's happening in the public realm currently, you know, with this incredible tribalism we're seeing between red states and blue states and vaxxers and anti-vaxxers and all of these, these other things that are tearing us apart. Um, so it, consilience is, is, a, is a moment in history that is enabling us to understand all of these things, in my view, more deeply than we've ever understood them before. Well, thank you for that uh, <laughs> it's reintroduction. A, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mind cruncher there. And we go... Yeah, I mean, we go really far into that and give a lot of examples in the first episode. And I wanted to, you know, let leave some mystery so people can read your book or get the audio version, which I've been enjoying. Uh, how to understand everything, consilience, a new way, a new way to see, see the, the world. world. Yes. Yeah. So, essentially. Um, I really liked, I did listen to one of your videos as well, which I think is probably from the book about consciousness and how consciousness evolved from in different uh, single cell organisms and then different swimming organisms and how it's kind of, um, how sciences and different, I guess, different disciplines have shown that the evidence uh, leads to more of a bottom up structure. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to have you comment a little bit on the bottom up, because I feel like this is a big point that if is, this is missed, then the other topics we're going to get to, which we are going to talk about anxiety, tribalism, we're going to talk about the pandemic and trauma and different things. But if we don't understand what a bottom up approach is, uh, then we're sort of missing the, the uh, some of the biggest points from your book and your viewpoint. So can you explain a little bit about the bottom up? Sure, sure. Um, before I, I talk about sort of bottom up in its sort of broadest meaning, I'll, I'll just explain this whole matter of consciousness because um, thousands of books have been written about consciousness and, and many of them deal with it as a sort of a, a quasi mystical thing. Um, in my book, I think I have like three or four paragraphs where I just explain, well, this is how consciousness evolved. You know, there's no sort of deep and enduring mystery about consciousness from a, from a biological and an evolutionary standpoint. I said, just this is what people have discovered. Um, but, but interestingly, um, I've never seen an explanation like mine anywhere else. And, and um, my explanation uh, is, is based on uh, trying to figure out how 
consciousness evolved? Because if you look at the way all organisms have come about in the world, um, it, it, it's because some basic building blocks were created uh, over a billion years ago. It's, it's like every single one of our cells in our body is like a, a Lego block. Um, those Lego blocks uh, evolved a, a long, long time ago. And there's unbelievable complexity that happens in each of those Lego blocks. Um, and whether it's a, a single Lego block that's swimming around in a drop of pond water or um, a collection of 20 trillion Lego blocks like ourselves, the, the basic Lego blocks aren't massively different one from another. So uh, you've got a beautiful little dog that's um, going to make some noise in the background. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many uh, Lego blocks it has, how many cells in its, its body. Who knows? You know, uh, maybe five trillion. But but those Lego blocks, the cells in its body, are not substantially different from the Lego blocks in ours. And we know we know that now from from genetics and, and cell biology. It's, it's sort of it's it's not controversial um, because. Uh, you, you know, we can see that 99% of our genes are very similar to the genes of a, a chimpanzee. Now, that doesn't sort of take away from the sort of the majesty of life and the complexity of what we see around us. I'm not trying to sort of minimize everything um, and sort of over sort of science it. But um, my, 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 my point is that the consciousness is not something that is likely to have evolved recently and by recently i mean in the last six million years since sort of uh, early forms of humans started um, roaming around africa uh, it, 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 it it's so it, it's so complex and and incredible that it wouldn't have happened recently it, it would have happened sort of early on in the way those lego blocks uh, uh, grow and and work together um, and so I just um, explain how, uh, let's say, a little worm that's swimming around in the ocean uh, 520 million years ago, which is when they sort of evolved, how the mechanisms actually um, came about and how cells, the neurons, uh, which are the nerves in the brain, sort of program themselves to point the worm in the right direction. And, and those basic mechanisms are no different from the mechanisms that are happening in our brain. Uh, and once you recognize that, you can explain consciousness. So, so sorry about becoming majorly sciencey on you. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to communicate is that this isn't a crazy sort of Tom B. Bain uh, idea. It's just uh, sort of putting the, putting the ideas together from a lot of different disciplines, genetics and cell biology and, uh, and, and evolutionary biology and so on. Um, but, but in terms of so, so, so the bottom up, let, let's take a look at the human body, for instance. The traditional way of looking at the human body is that um, it, it's a set of organs um, that sort of work together much like a, a machine would work, you know, with, with different circuits and, 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 and relays and, and um, pneumatics. Um, and and the, the brain tells the body what to do. Well, once you realize that each of those Lego blocks is, is if you like, looking after itself, the idea that one part of our body, the, the brain, takes control is, is untenable. 
Um, because like it would mean that I don't know, all the cells, you know, in your fingers and muscles are going sort of gonna say, well, you know, I, I sort of hand over my job to to you, Mr. Brain or Mrs. Brain. And and that that absolutely doesn't happen. And we we know it doesn't happen because of what we see, you know, with plasticity, uh, neuroplasticity, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Um, you know, the the, the, the brain is and the neurons in the brain are constantly sort of reprogramming themselves. So, you know, how this ties in with trauma and, and so on is, is that um, the, the old way of understanding the brain was that, that it was a sort of a modular computational device, a little bit like a computer sort of instructing the, 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 the muscles what to do. The new way of understanding the brain that isn't, frankly, terribly well explained in, in uh, neurophysiology textbooks uh, is that it's an organic, uh, it's an organic system, and it, it's the whole neural system that happens like throughout the body that's a, a sort of working. It's organic and present. Like everything that we do is happening absolutely in the moment, from fraction of a second to fraction of a second. It, and so our traditional ways of understanding how the brain works really aren't correct. As simple as that. Um, and, and, and so what I'm talking about, are sort of ideas that have been expounded by sort of modern neurophysiologists like Lisa Feldman Barrett, you know, who's wrote a book about emotions. Uh, so, so the, no, nothing's particularly crazy, but it completely changes the way this, this bottom up idea, um, completely changes the way one understands how the brain works, how, um, we interact with each other, what communications is. I hope I haven't um, sort of dug in too deep here. No, you, no, you... This, this is a good overview. Um, so I would say that the reason the bottom-up approach is so important is it helps us understand not only human behavior, but mammal behavior and reptile behavior uh, from, a cell, from a cell behavior. So if you... If you go to my favorite little microorganisms called the tardigrades, who are often misunderstood because they do die, but they can survive the vacuum of space. And if you're online, you can you know Google these tardigrades, which look like little water bears. You, you and, must be one of the few fans of tardigrades in uh, in, in the universe. I, I I might be, but I think it's <laughs> going to start trending. Um, so among my friends, we have a, tar somebody got a tardigrade mug off of Etsy and, uh, it's handmade and it's got tardigrades on it. It's pretty cool. Um, they're quite small, aren't they? Like they're, very small. They're, they're about the small, they're about the size of the tip of a pencil. Okay. Um, and so you, you, you could see them with a the naked eye, but it would possibly look like a, a, like a, 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 speck. a speck of, you know, pepper to you. Yeah. Uh, and they live all over the United States in trees and in moss and water droplets. And uh, if you look at them, they look complicated and they look like a nice little bear. And these things can resist temperature changes, very extreme from extreme heat to extreme cold. And they do all these interesting things. But the interesting thing about the tardigrade is that just like us, when it sees food, it goes forward. And when mm -hmm. it senses a threat, it comes backwards. And anyone who's been around animals, mammals long enough understands that that's a basic mammal uh, behavior um, yes. forward towards a source of food or pleasure and backwards towards a threat. 
And yes. the and and what's happening it and what we understand a little bit from um, the polyvagal theory that's coming out in the uh, psychology world. Um, I'm not sure who first did it, but who made it famous was uh, Dr. Stephen Porges and Deb Dana. Yeah. Um, uh, were the pioneers of bringing this into our field was taking this thing, these things we know from science uh, and, and the nervous system and explaining them better instead of this sort of like the brain is like this operator supposedly throwing signals down our arms and legs with the nervous system. No, the nervous system is completely reacting in tune all the time. So that's why I say people people are like, well, my brain's up here and I was, I should have thought more before this happened. And it's like, no, your body reacted in a different way. And it re- reacted in ventral vagal, which yeah. is from polyvagal, which is the safe response, which is rest and digest. It's when your autonomic nervous system is in the um, parasympathetic state. Um, mm-hmm. And, but if I sense danger, depending on the person and your personality, unlike the water bear, who will probably retreat if my personality was more like a, I don't know, maybe a mammal that's more aggressive, maybe a tiger or something. I don't, not sure if they run away or, or fight. Not sure. It depends on the, <laughs> well, depends yeah. on the threat level. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I might, I might either fight or flight as I get more aroused. I might get, you know, angry and yell at somebody fight, or I might run away if I'm afraid. Um, and also angry at the same time. And my sudden my sympathetic nervous system comes into play. Now our nervous system is much more complicated than the tardigrade right? Yes. But the principles apply. And and they've, in, in the polyvagal theory, you can see if you look at the whole, if you go to the whole basic training, they'll take you through all the different animals and mammals and reptiles and how these, how the ventral vagal system went to the sympathetic system, went to the dorsal vagal system. And yeah. they'll explain, so if you get even more aroused or, or, or worried, you'll go into dorsal vagal, which is a life threat, a hyper arousal, and you'll actually go into sort of, sort of freeze response if you're, if you're a more simple animal. Um, where you uh, you can experience all these collapse sort of symptoms like dissociation, numbness, depression, if you're a human. Other animals go into freeze as well, like, you know, fainting goats. They'll just fall asleep. You know, they faint, they fall over. Um, you know, people, when it, why doesn't that squirrel get out of the road? It's just frozen. It's sitting there. And then I, you know, accidentally run it over with my car. Um, but also in freeze, in, in the trauma theory, we've also noticed that humans will do two other things, which is... Uh, well, one other thing though, that we call it fawn because we like to we like things that rhyme. So we've got fight, flight, freeze, fawn, and flop. Of course, flop is collapse in in the freeze mode, and um, the and the fawn is when you sort of try to adapt your behavior to your, for lack of a better word, your captors or your abusers. You sort of try to please people or please the tribe so that you aren't further harmed. Right? It's sort of like playing dead when you see a bear. Yeah. Um, and so the reason I bring that up is because not only is polyvagal theory, something people should check out, but it not only has the psychological components, which we can see through the different parts of the nervous system. It also has corresponding, uh, uh, ways that it, it, uh, w- when you're in these different States have affect digestion, blood pressure, heart rate, um, fuel storage, muscle tone, uh, irritability, the way you hear voices, the way you don't hear voices, the way you process information. It's all interesting because we're much more complicated than the little tardigrade. Yeah. However, the principles are based on a bottom-up philosophy of yes. that most humans, unbeknownst to them, have been told wrong their entire life. 
that they should have just thought about it more, that they should have made a plan, that they that their their uh, you know whatever their reaction is is wrong, when in fact their nervous system has reacted depending on the person. Yes. To a circumstance before they even realized it. Then their brain, because of language was a later, <laughs> it's a later development evolution, made yeah. up a story about why they did what they did. And that's where we get the personality. So let me give, just give you one example real quick. So okay. let's just say you're a, a, a worker and you've, you, you know, you're, you're feeding your family and that's, you live paycheck to paycheck. And you go into your boss's office for a chat and he says, or she says, um, you know, I'm sorry, we're going to have to fire you immediately. And, uh, you know, you're, you're gone today. Now, some people may, if they're having like, depending on the personality, having an authentic reaction may scream and say, how dare you? I'm screwed. Right. But Mm -hmm. we've been socialized in our society to have a polite exchange with this person who's firing us, you know, yeah, yeah. well, sir, yeah. yes. Uh, could I, could I get a uh, cover, you know, get a letter of reference and, you know, these sort mm-hmm. of things. So we're, we're suppressing our natural nervous system reactions, though that same energy may come out later when this person uh, goes home, uh, they might uh, experience all sorts of mental health symptoms, or they may uh, try to find the nearest available thing to numb them, such as alcohol or marijuana. They might punch something. So, what I'm, what I guess we're trying to say is this top-down theory, and we can give examples of this, is coming from a scientific misunderstanding of the brain and the entire nervous system and the organism as a whole, um, and it comes possibly partly from mythology. I mean, you talk about that in your, um, yeah, your video, but maybe you can yeah. explain a little bit because I don't know if I went too far down the polyvagal realm trying to trying to bring it in line with the bottom-up theory. No, no, that's it, it meshes um, absolutely. Um, I, I, I guess sort of my perspective, uh, my perspective is s- sort of, um, com- comparing two contrasting ways of looking at the brain. And, um, you know, when you get to the details, uh, there's lots of room for, uh, f- fawns and flops and freezes and, and so on, uh, you know, I, I don't write about that or even know much about it, frankly. Uh, I mean, I do write about the startle response, how everything can happen within just a fraction of a second of you getting hit on the back of the head. I mean, there's just a remarkable cascade of complex reactions that happen way faster than our, our conscious brain can think. But my, you know, my way of sort of coming at it is is to contrast the typical academic way of um, viewing sort of consciousness and behavior as um, the, 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 the brain has evolved, you know, the, the triune brain, we, we had the, the reptile brain and then the mammal brain and then the human brain with the consciousness on top that controls behavior. I mean, that has been completely discredited uh, in, um, you know, by, new, uh, by neuroanatomists and evolutionary uh, biologists. It, it, it doesn't stand up at all. But, but this whole idea that, uh, sort of you learn behavior at school by like looking at books and 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 sort of learning how to uh reason and uh, you know there's a type one way of reacting which is uh, quick and then sort of type two which is more reasoned i i mean that whole way of looking at the development of people and young people is has been discredited uh, in my view uh the way I look at it is that 
our brains are still working in many of the same, many, many of the same ways, actually almost completely in the same ways as a tardigrade's brain, um, but but there's just added layers of complexity on top of that. And our brain is, it's, it's what's called goal-directed. Like everything that we do is sort of like moving us, you know, somewhere that's good, like socially or uh, in terms of status or what, you know, whatever's important at that particular moment. Um, but it, our brain is operating absolutely in the moment. And, and, and that's not what most sort of academics acknowledge. They think, oh, okay, you sort of think things out and then make decisions. Absolutely not. We are like right now we're in a conversation we are acutely uh, sensitive to what each other's saying. And, and if you just change your tenor, I, you know, I can see you on the Zoom call, if you start looking angry, I, I'm going to uh, change what I do. And, and that's going to be something that uh, happens even before I think about it. Um, because, because we're absolutely in tune with everything that's happening around us. And if, uh, you know, if something strange happens out of the corner of our eye, we, we react far, far faster than, um, than we can ever think. And, and and my contention is that that nearly all of human behavior is subconscious, nearly all of it, and and it's and the most remarkable things about the human brain are the things that we aren't even aware that our brain is doing, like sort of organizing what we're seeing into sort of the different categories of things that we see around us. So, um, so so we you know we are completely, completely in line with each other uh, in, in uh, you know, sort of the, the consilience way of understanding the human brain is absolutely uh, in, in line with, uh, your, you know, your polyvagal theory. I, I don't know, frankly, about the details of the polyvagal theory and, and um, you know, there, there are probably some parts that I could pick holes in if I put my mind to it. But, but, but the notion that the breath, that the, the body is a partner in our behavior is absolutely um, in line with the way I think about the human, human behavior. You know, everything that's happening in our muscles, everything that's happening in our skin, uh, our heart, our, uh, our, our, our gut and so on, all of that is affecting how we're behaving from moment to moment. Yes, exactly. That is very much in line with the way the polyvagal theory and the trauma-informed theory sees things. We see it as humans adapting to their environment, which is why when you said about young people learning, um, from what I've learned uh, from psychology and where our field has been going, and it's drifted far away from this top-down approach, it's been our field is luckily going more towards a bottom-up way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. Young people learn by imitation and they learn by environment and they learn by adapting to their circumstances. They do not learn primarily from textbooks or from the Ten Commandments or from rules or from this. They learn by breaking rules. They learn by making mistakes. And so an easy yes. example is in psychology, you know, in counseling world, you'll get parents coming in saying, you know, my kid isn't following these five rules. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. And uh, I'm sick of it. And I need you, therapist, to fix it. And then we say, we can't. I mean, we could bring you in for family therapy, 
you know, and we can work with, <laughs> yeah, with so, you all in the, as a family. And they say, are you serious? This, this is, this is a, not my issue. This is my child, not compliant. I've taught them all these things. So what you've done in a sense is been Charlie Brown's parents barking orders at them, but they don't care what you say. They care what you do. Now they yes. care what you say, if you're going to take away their phone or their toys or their yeah. whatever, but the children learn by what you do in your life. And so if you are barking all of this, I don't know, this is a, this is a fun one to pick on. I am a dad who believes in personal responsibility. And then they see you shirk your own personal responsibility when it comes to maybe your partner or your, your car maintenance or your bills. What, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to do what you do, not what you told them to do. And uh, it, it's a, it's a big it's a big, uh, difficult thing for parents to deal with because the, a lot of a lot of them haven't considered how their behavior or how they cope with things would be what the children are picking up on. But that's exactly what they're picking up on. Every moment is is teaching a child, especially when you're a little baby and a little child. Every moment is absorbing information. They're absorbing their environment, and so. Yeah. Therefore, um, and I'm not saying they can't make choices, and I'm not saying that their mind doesn't come up with little schemes and misbehaving sure. and, this and, that, and, and that we don't have autonomy. But for the most part, children are sponges. And what you said about subconscious, um, it, a, a, a lot of our behavior until we get to be old enough and we can start examining and contemplating why we did what we did, usually afterwards, yeah. is subconscious. In fact, uh, Carl Jung, whose could whose work could be exalted or burned depending on where you're at, but I think it's I think it covers the gamut of a lot of fun things. He he said one of the major tasks of the human soul is to make the unconscious conscious. Mm-hmm. And if you could figure out un- reasons and answers as to your unconscious behaviors and thoughts and say them or put them out there, you would then have a healing effect because you would. I think, I don't know, not make up a weird story. Like you get the real reason uh, where normally humans are making up stories about things. So mm-hmm. anyway, that was my little, uh, my little comment on. Uh, yeah. If I, if I could that. just um, add to that, I, I think, um, I think when people think about communication, they, 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 they think in terms of words, you know, written words and, and, and the, the words that are stated um, or said, that there's a lack of appreciation that way more communication happens sort of physically with just body movements, the way our eyes are moving, you know, what we're looking at, what we're worried about, how we, you know, our, our gait and, 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 and uh, a- a- aspects of how we interact that most people are not, not aware of at all. Like a, a trained actor um, tends to get, sort of tuned to those things. And um, and I know when I was um, raising my kids, I mean, I put two girls and they're 32 and 30 years old, um, so they're, they're well beyond this. But when they, they were little, um, when they were babies, um, I, I was a very affectionate dad. I was always, like, uh, throwing them in the air and giving them hugs. But but I, I sort of made a point of always talking to them as adults, so I would never go into baby talk just so they could get used to that. But but more than that, I, I would try and teach them that words themselves aren't terribly important. It's the, it's the sentiments behind the words. So I would, uh, I would you know, call them, you know, bad little monkeys or something like that, or, you know, a bad monkey rat. But I would always then, um, you know, give them a, like a warm hug and, and, and 
sort of bury, you know, bury my mouth in their neck. So um, they they could always tell that it wasn't my words that were important; it was my behaviour. And 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 um, and I I believe that one of the reasons I enjoyed being a dad so much was because we used to do so many things together. You know, just physical things like going for walks and what have you. And and I and and I never made a point of sort of lecturing them. Anyway, that's that's just. I guess how um, my sort of perspectives uh, sort of bled over into the way I raised my kids. And unfortunately, they're not too psychotic at all now. Well, piece. that's you know that's good evidence right there, anecdotal. Yeah. But I mean that that is in line exactly with what um, Dr. Dan Siegel has been preaching and what Dr. Bruce Perry has been saying. And actually, Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah just wrote a book together, which is interesting, um, mm. called what happened to you? And then there's a subtitle about trauma or something like that. But essentially it's how the medical model used to say, what's wrong with you? Sort of Mm -hmm. in a shaming way when somebody would come in with a behavior or an addiction or they're overweight, instead of saying, what happened to you that caused you to have this adaptive reaction, which then became a constricting negative behavior, Mm -hmm. right? So with what was once useful is now constricting if you don't adapt further. So for instance, uh, an easy one here would be, you, you know, I wanted to bring up, I'm going to give you an example of, let's say a father who didn't have a, a good, uh, affection behind his actions. And all he did was yell at his daughters and say, Oh, you're, you're too, you know, you know, you're looking overweight and you aren't good enough at tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Right there. It, 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 they take you seriously because as a child, uh, you're basically God to your child. They don't, they don't know the world outside of your microcosm of a family. Yeah. And so yeah. one of them might say, well, I, I really should eat less because I need to, you know, be skinny and I need to work more hard at tennis. And, and, and they start doing these behaviors, which become overcompensant overcompensant i can't say it but they overcompensate yeah okay <laughs> that's too long of a word uh, they, <laughs> they overcompensate and then years later they're still having trouble and that that comes from the nervous system because of the meaning they 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 meant with that they wanted to please their father so what you did a good job of um from what you're telling me is what's called co-regulation and this is one of the major tenets of uh, polyvagal theory when it when it's applied to psychology and applied to teaching parents how to have better behaved children that they get along and like each other. It's a called co-regulation. It's all about regulating my nervous system Mm -hmm. so that the younger person, or if I'm a therapist, the person in mental distress across from me can Mm -hmm. feel my presence and Mm -hmm. feel the way that I talk to them and the tenor and the, and the gentleness and the approach and the acceptance and the actual listening And for patients, that is what's part of what heals them besides the techniques we teach, because they have to trust us on a deep level, which is difficult if you've been wounded by your family or others. And for children, they have to be trusting us to want to please us and to want to learn and to want to grow. And so what you were doing was called what we would call co-regulation, because when your child is young, their nervous system is your nervous system. They cannot regulate themselves. They... They don't know when, you know, people, I could go far and far into parenting. Yeah, yeah, I, actually, I hear you. Yeah. I, I, you know, in my terminology, a, a, a sort of a word would be, you know, I presume when you're with a patient uh, or when one is interacting with a, a child, you know, as a parent or a teacher, that word is engagement. You know, what, 
you you have to show that you care and 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 just by sort of the the act of listening and and looking as though you're listening and 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 um making it clear that you care that that in itself sort of facilitates healing and and therapy and and good development doesn't it that that's absolutely. my way of thinking absolutely mm-hmm. and um you know, I think this may be a segue into some of the things you want to talk about. Um, I just want to make sure we, for the listener, we understand that the top-down way of looking at things is coming from, I don't know, how, what when was this popular, what would you um, say? Well, I, I, I think it, it's had a very long genesis, um, and, and it, it sort of comes from the ancient Greeks, Not you know, not to blame Aristotle too much, but the whole idea that the um, the world was uh, ruled by a, a sort of a mover in the heavens, and and there was a sort of a hierarchy of, of existence, the scala naturae. That that was where it um, originated, but um, but it's become sort of locked in as a central uh, ideology and dogma in in academia recently because um, there's this idea that the brain actually handles information. And that the brain is like a computer, um, and that the way you teach people is by sort of shoveling this this stuff called information into that brain, and and that sort of leads people to become successful and intelligent. Um, you know, once they sort of process it with their internal microprocessors. Um, so the the, the current uh, um, ways of thinking about the the brain, this sort of top-down way, it's it's become predominant in particularly academic society. You know, it's sort of a blue state way of thinking, which sort of tends to um, sideline traditional spiritual ways of looking at the world, um, you know, to make it somewhat political. Um, that, so, so the, yeah, so, so this top-down way of um, conceptualizing behavior, the brain, the way that the world is organized, you know, with a prime mover in the sky, sort of ruling the, the world through uh, law, phys- the laws of physics. It's some, you know, something that's been around a long time, but it's actually become even more extreme over the last 20 or 30 years since the, since the dawn of um, sort of widespread micro, you know, microprocessors and computing. Um, and 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 I, that's why I think you know folk like yourself uh, need to fight back against that way of thinking because it's not how it's not how the brain works. It's not how human be- uh, human behavior comes about. Uh, and so it's be- probably becoming e- even harder for you to um, sort of practice when when um, the, the prevailing dogma is, well, it's all about information and, and answering multiple choice questions and making sure that you pass your exams and, and getting a credential and uh, sitting in front of a computer. You know, that that's unfortunately not our biology. Yeah, I could not agree more with that. I, I want to make a few comments because there's a big fight in my field about this very topic. For instance, okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't mind cognitive behavioral therapy. It was one of the predominant forms of, of therapy that kind of started our field. And, and it does work to a point, but it all it works on how you do it. And that's what we've learned from all the research and counseling. It matters how you do it. 
and the way the person brings it. It's called the common factors. And literally, this is hilarious, but a lot of cognitive behavioral therapists still to this day, if they're certified, will say, the brain's like a computer, you know, and then they'll give all these examples. And that's just- Correct. Yes. And I disagree completely. And it, so it's, a, it's not a good starting point. No, it's a bad starting point. And it's not like a computer. It, the, it, the only thing, it, and so it starts with a bad paradigm. And so that's why the trauma informed model, and we don't even, I shouldn't even call it trauma informed, it should be neuroscience informed, uh, prog- uh, whatever we start learning more and more informed yeah. trauma or informed therapy. And that's what we're trying to do is, we have to basically teach people to unlearn or deprogram from this for multiple ideas. One of which is it's a top down, and that helps because that hurts people's self esteem. I must be a loser because I did this wrong, and I'm I'm uh, I couldn't think to be economically successful in this way, so I must be a lesser than being. So that is first of all <laughs> affects mm. us majorly, mm-hmm. and secondly. Um, you know, the same thing with teachers and parents, which is, and this reminds me of this quote that's probably attributed to this Confucian philosopher from the third century, which is tell me, and I forget, teach me. And I remember involve me and I learn. And Mm -hmm. I bring that quote up because what we're trying to do with the new types of therapy I'm doing, and and just the paradigm is to involve people right? We don't just lecture them and say, well, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you have these cognitive distortions. See, Tom, when you're scared of that tree that you're passing by when you're driving, that's because your brain is malfunctioning. It's not malfunctioning. Yeah, yeah. It is it is adapting to the fact that you almost hit a tree once, and now it's seeing that tree as a stimuli. And it's not just your your eyes that are seeing it. Your entire nervous system is seeing it. It's lighting up in some sort of you know, if I could use the metaphor of holiday lights, it lights up a certain pattern in your body when you see that tree and it's actually adapting to help you. And it's giving you physical and palpable anxiety and intrusive thoughts about being wrapped around that tree in your car. And that is actually good, Tom. And let me explain to you why that's good. It's your brain trying to protect you. Now I have to give you coping skills to help you turn the volume down so you can drive amongst the trees in the forest. You know, instead of my God, you're thinking of that all wrong. Here's these exercises to start beating this out of your head in, you know, cognitive behavioral boot camp. Now I'm not saying I'm going to get emails from cognitive behavioral therapists. I'm not saying that that's what you say, but I'm saying that is how people in our culture have taken cognitive behavioral therapy and used it to, to not only shame people into that, that their nervous system reactions are wrong and bad, but also, and this is where it really gets my goat is that somehow the therapist is superior to the client because they know this information and they are bringing this top-down methodology to the therapy room, which is why if you've had a bad experience in therapy, that's probably what happened to you. The therapist thinks they're high and mighty because they got a master's degree. Instead of seeing you as an equal partner that they will involve and t- not just teach because teaching is a part of it because you have to help the paradigm orient because it's a it's a deprogramming from the modern uh, and I don't mean just the education system because there's plenty of good things about the education system too I mean our sure. our cultural education system yeah. what you see on television what you read on the internet um, you know what is important to to what what gets clicks you know controversy yeah, yeah. divorce chaos so uh, essentially well, don't get me going on the on okay. the, the arrogance of experts <laughs> okay we won't because <laughs> I'll, I'll get into I'll get into trouble I mean you know I, I love experts yeah. sort of as as individuals. 
particularly when you're you know going one on one like we are now. Yeah. But when, when you put experts uh, into groups, um, they they develop groupthink worse than anyone, and um, and and along with that groupthink uh, goes sort of arrogance, and, and it, it's it takes one to very bad places. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing right now uh, on many uh, 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 things that are happening in the public realm. That, that they're people who imagine that they know better for, you know, kids and, and how to raise kids. And, and I, I think that anyone who sort of applies simplistic theories to something as sort of complex and rich as educating a child uh, has a broken understanding of the complexities of everything, you know, knowledge and science. Uh, and yeah, I could I could go on <laughs> and get myself into trouble. Well, it, yeah. Well, I think this is a good segue though, because I think we've now talked about bottom up and why that's important and why it brings us into a way of learning and experiencing the world that can be more involved and can be, uh, you know, isn't so mythical. And then we're kind of going towards what was top down, and you just kind of name some top down things, which is if a bunch of experts get together they can't read the room, so to speak, come up with something and then throw it at the other people without having maybe tested it out fully among, you know, what is the reaction going to be and got some feedback. So I think that might lead a little bit into the discussion we were going to chat about. And I'm, I'm not sure if this is too soon, but my brain's making the connection about the current state of high levels of anxiety and depression, which is in the news yeah. every day due to the ongoing um, pandemic. Uh, and tribalism. So you had some comments on that. So per, is that a, is that a good way to go now? Yeah, I'm, I mean it's a huge, huge subject, and and um, I I always like using examples um, and, and even triggering examples just because it um, helps um, illustrate the point. My um, like I, I've spent a career in marketing. Okay, so. Uh, I, I've been working for, for very big, successful companies, thinking up ideas that um, are designed to change people's minds about products and services and so on. And um, and I think it's fair to say I've had a very successful career uh, running an agency. And so I've become very attuned to the, the tricks that, um, that are used in my industry. Uh, and they're used in mar- you know, marketing products as well as in politics. And um, I've become attuned to the power of words and how a word can become a symbol um, that has immediate effects on people. Um, and, 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 and I like to think about things from what, sort of where I to use that metaphor uh, it's a bit unfortunate that i'm using that metaphor um sort of I, I like to disassociate myself from the actual words themselves and say like what is happening in someone's brain when when we hear a word and and let's just pick a highly contentious uh, couple of words right now if you don't mind which is jan 6 jan 6 oh yes january 6 yes january 6 okay so um, to people in North America, uh, in America who are sort of left-leaning Democrats, 
uh, Jan 6 is representative of a threat to democracy. Um, you know, that's when um, some people, largely in fancy dress, uh, sort of, quote, broke into the um, uh, Senate, I think it was. Um, they broke into the Capitol building, yes. Capitol building, that's yeah. right. Shows, shows my ignorance of American politics. <laughs> it's okay. I think um, the Senate building is in the Capitol building. Yes. There you go. Um, to 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 right-leaning people, it it wasn't that at all. It wasn't an insurrection. It was a bunch of people sort of wanting to basically express themselves and 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 uh, sort of demonstrate the same as many many other people have demonstrated, uh, th- you know, through history. And and according to uh, Ted, uh, Senator Cruz. Um, it was probably sort of inflamed somewhat by CIA or other operatives. So there's two massively different ways of looking at this. But, you know, when you start talking about Jan 6 to uh, anyone in America, well, most people in America, it has an instant effect uh, on them. You know, well, that was evil or, you know, it wasn't evil. It was just, you know, people sort of um, expressing themselves. Um, and, And it's... And, and it's like your tardigrade, you know, it's, it's, it's an instant response to just a couple of words. And so those words have become what I call tribal banners. Okay. And, um, uh, uh, and we, 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 we gather together into our tribe, particularly when there's a perceived threat like a, th- a threat to our, ch- our families, our children, our parents, the, the people around us. Um, when, when, there's a f- when there's that fear, it triggers um, our, the, the, those, those same um, instincts that um, cause us to look after children and, and, uh, and, and that you see throughout the mammalian world. You know, you see it with your, your, you know, your dog when it has a pup. Um, it, it it will lash out to anyone that threatens that pup. So the, the, those same mechanisms are happening in the human brain. They're happening deep, 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 deep down. Um, and 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 I think one can understand a lot about what's um, happening to populations and how honestly we're being manipulated very often by political forces on one side or the other um, to be fearful. And, um, and and to sort of collect together in a, into opposing tribes. And, and I, th- I think it's helpful for everyone to have a deeper understanding, like a, a more honest understanding of our own biology and everyone's biology, um, because it helps sort of quieten one down so that when you hear a w- word that's triggering, you, you just, you, you start to listen and say, well, what, what do you actually mean when you use those words? And and I, th- I think we would get along better with each other if people reacted like that more often, uh, and 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 instinctively instead of saying, well, you know, do you believe in that? You know, do do you believe it was an insurrection or not? Um, you say, well, actually, what you know, what precise? How do you, how did you arrive at at your emotional response to those particular words? And and I'm, I would presume that meshes together with what you sometimes try and achieve with, you know, your therapies. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, in the therapy, a lot of 
depression and anxiety. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say all, I'm going to say some anxiety and depression come from a hyper focus of something. So Mm -hmm. for instance, uh, for some people, and this is, I'm being very grossly generalistic. So, you know, no emails, please. It's just a general thing I see. Um, we see people hyper-focused on something, right? And, and they, and they, and then, and then their mind kind of focuses to based on their personality or, or any sort of other things in their, in their life, such as maybe, maybe a more rational approach or maybe a more emotional approach. One or the other, normally, um, they'll pick on one of, you know, either rationally looking at something and hyper-focusing and it makes them have irritation, frustration, anger, fear, uh, depression, these sort of things, because usually it's something outside of their control. And then on the same level, sometimes we see somebody taking a very emotional on the other side, an emotional response to something. And it just is irking them and irking them and irking them. And they can't seem to see the other sides. The rational person doesn't know what their emotions are doing and that's causing them massive issues. And the overly emotional person reacting to the stimuli, this hyper-focus can't see the rational side and that's causing them to be in balance. And, and, Mm -hmm. And in one of our therapies, we try to do an exercise where we try to have you be aware of both parts and not that there's only two parts of your mind, but just metaphorically, mm-hmm. your rational and your emotional sides and try to find a balance when looking at the same stimuli. Can we, can we look as if we're a third person looking down from a balloon or a, or a drone at ourselves yes. and say, can we imagine what the emotional side of us is saying? What is the rational side of us saying? What is the fearful side? And then we can break it down further. I mean, there's different parts. You know, what is our what is our self that's fearful? What is that like? Uh, it reminds me of when I'm 16 and I was trapped in a car, you know, or uh, it reminds me of when I was in college and I was so angry at this one professor. It brings us to different moments in our life, which may explode our reaction toward something or the other. And so mm-hmm. that being said, I think, you were you were saying like words can become focal points. What was the word you used? Uh, tribal banners. I mean, tribal c- banners. certain words um, right. b- become representative of a particular group. Correct. And so the more the, the more that people people in political parties understand how to use fear, and fear yes. is the great driver. Um, in fact. There are some Buddhist sayings, of course, not in English, but they've been translated to say the the biggest part of human suffering is fear, greed, and the ignorance of your full humanity. The ignorance of not understanding who you are and where you are in the universe. I mean, that's a spiritual belief, but but I Mm -hmm. see that because, you know, if I, and I'm a person who likes to, who likes to hear from both sides. I don't like to, I, I don't like to to go off of one tribe or the other. But if I, if you say a trigger word, like you said, January 6th, what you're going to hear is two vastly different ideas, but both are based in fear and both often have anger and yes. both believe that the other one is taking away their rights or taking away their way of life or um, going or, or is involved in some super secret plot to oppress everyone. But oddly enough, they both say that in different ways. Yes. Right. And, 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 yes. and we could explain how, but that would be getting into the, the meat yeah. of it more. What's, what's unfortunate is that if, if you even talk about some of these things, it shows that you're not sort of embracing one tribe or the other, which means that you're not part of that tribe. So e- even talking about who knows, you know, democracy or 
capitalism or Jan 6th or, or Trump vaccines. or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, as soon as you start talking about that person, the, the um, your, your audience member, you know, tries to pick up on which tribe you're part of. And if it's clear that you're sort of hovering above the whole thing and you're not actually sort of um, – sort of fully embracing their way of looking at the world, it means that they uh, instantly become suspicious of you, which is, um, you know, which is deeply unfortunate. And I think we've got to, we've got to train ourselves to talk about these things without being judgmental. Um, and we've got to recognize when we're being played by uh, one, one side or the other. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, I think, you know, when you say being played, I think part of that is an organization that exists is sort of, I know this is funny, but it, it sort of becomes a, it, it, an organization almost becomes an organism. It, it mm -hmm. wants to survive. It It wants to live. And so it will do whatever it takes to adapt to the climate. And, and that's right. And, and so I've seen that's that's a theory I have, but I feel like when you say being played, I, I think it's that they 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 keep testing out what is going to get more people to join their organization and what is going to keep more people from atrophying away from their organization, what is going to keep money coming in and what is going to keep lawsuits away. And so therefore, one of the easiest ways is to say join our tribe because the other tribes trying to destroy your life, your way of life, and everything about it. And that's where it's escalated in America is that the two political parties that are dominant literally say, if the other one gets elected, everything's going to be ruined for you. Yeah, yeah. Your children are ruined. Your rights are ruined. This is ruined. And it depends what rights you're talking about because both have like little issues they like to poke, even though they never do much about either of them um, when they're actually in office. But uh, it, it it's actually getting a little scary because uh, then you're right. Like there is no conversation. Um, for instance, uh, uh, I like a lot of natural approaches to living natural. See, I'm saying natural. See, that's a, that's a key word right there, isn't that? That's a triggering but word. Natural. It's a triggering word, but I, <laughs> but on the same level. So I have a Eastern practitioner I work with for my health and I have a Western practitioner I work with for my health. Why? Because they both have really great things to contribute and they yeah. both have different paradigms, but neither of them says, don't see the other one. They yeah. just say, let us know if the other one's giving you something. So I know not to mesh you know, with those two ingredients, with the ingredients. Um, and, and so I find that rare, uh, for instance, the whole vaccine thing, um, we could go on for that forever and research and blah, 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 and everyone's viewpoints. Yeah, yeah. But for me, it was more like, what's my calculated risk. I understand this vaccine is, it could be risky, but so could contracting the disease. So what, what am I going to do about that? Right. That's how I kind of took it. And I, yeah. and, and until, I don't know, 10 or 20 years of longitudinal studies on the vaccine and also longitudinal studies on the people that uh, got COVID and didn't have the vaccine are, are analyzed, we won't really know the real answer. It was yeah. a risk. And so I think there's a lot of uh, anger, a lot of, uh, what's that called? Immediate anxiety. character judgments on both sides. Yeah, anxiety yeah. And, and anxiety, right. And the judgment is coming from the anxiety because if you're anxious and then you 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 meet somebody who doesn't, take your worldview, you automatically assume I need to defend myself against you instead of, I want to know why you don't have the yes. same viewpoint I have, or, and maybe we could discuss that. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, the whole vaccine um, matter is, is a fascinating case study in, in uh, 
mass psychology, marketing, uh, organizations. And, and let's, let's talk a little bit about sort of conspiracy theories and why, on the whole, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. Like, on the whole, I mean, there are conspiracies, of course. Sure. Um, and evil people. Um, but the way I look at um, the behavior of, of people is that, you know, we, we love being part of organizations. We, we cannot exist sort of outside of um, various social groupings. I mean, we are uh, absolutely social animals. We, we, we just li- literally would die without um, others. Uh, and so when, when you get sort of groups of, of physicians or regulators or politicians in a particular party, they, um, they, they, they tend to fall in line with a particular goal or ideology. And, and that can evolve from, and if you look at it from a bottom-up standpoint, it, it evolves from all of the collect all of the the collective behaviors of every individual sort of uh, operating from day to day and minute to minute, and and it 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 it, it leads to uh, a a a, a, um, a crystallization of belief that can be generally sort of summed up in, 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 in a very simple vision or objective and, and a couple of key words. You know, it might, it might be like public safety, let's say, um, or, you know, health for everyone. Um, but, uh, but, but the, um, I mean, let's say with vaccines, what really needs to happen is that everyone is treated as an individual, you know, a, a child, a child, depending on sort of their health and, and conditions should be treated according to their individual circumstances. And unfortunately, when sort of organizations take over, uh, everyone gets, gets put into the same box. And so, you know, everyone has to have the same therapy, you know, two weeks apart or whatever it is. And, and, and I, and, and that in my view is, is very, is very often counterproductive. You know, you, you, you've, you've got to treat the individual, you've got to understand, um, and you've got to understand how people, uh, develop the ways of thinking and the protocols that they that they they have, and uh, and I'm very suspicious of big anything. You know, big government, big tech, big pharma, big marketing, big company, whatever. Um, you know, let let let's let's listen to experts as experts as individuals and and evaluate their ideas based on their experience and their merits. And, and let's be highly suspicious of groupthink because groupthink um, can very often crystallize in, in ways that are not good for the individual. And looking at the world from the bottom up, if, if every individual uh, is, is healthy and productive and um, feels good about their, you know, their role and and their ability to look after themselves, then society works fantastically. If you've got large groups of people who don't feel that, 
uh, it's going to implode at some point. <clears throat> and, and we're heading towards um, implosion point, unfortunately. Yes, it would be wonderful if people could all feel good in their role. I mean, I think that is the role of, if if we, how do I say this? It's the role of what they called the polis in the Greek, you know, which was, the, that's where the word politics comes from, which is the people mm-hmm. coming together and having opinions and trying to make something. So the hard part about our society right now, as you said, we're heading towards a breaking point. I think... I don't I don't see it as a breaking point. I see it as an entropy point. Um, I think certain areas of our society are are facing very boring and small breakdowns in uh, I don't know, de-evolution, if if you will, because mm-hmm. of very complex factors um, and, and because we do need people. And, and who knows, maybe maybe the pandemic is a breaking point. I don't know, but that's exposing the entropy. But we do want people to feel good in their role. We want people to feel that they have, you know, a place to have a healthy family. And that, you know, what we've been seeing with the pandemic is that we need to be, as a society, I think, in North America, we need to be thinking about our mental health and and how, how that affects everything. I mean, it's there's already there's already a host of studies on how having decent mental health can contribute to positive physical health and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing you were talking about with conspiracy theories and this sort of the group think the the reason I don't believe in conspiracy theories, I do believe in people doing dirty tricks, like you said, and and manipulating. But the, the problem with conspiracy theories for me is that it provides a simple overarching answer that is completely reductionistic and almost black and white in the way it's almost it's almost remember the villains from james bond and batman and and uh you know these old comic books and they're just for sure they they sometimes are sophisticated in that they have like a reason why they became evil but normally they're just like i'm evil anything that's evil i'm good with anything that is good i'm bad with i don't like anything good you know, and and that is when I hear these conspiracy theories, and I've read some of them. My God, I, I'm just like, I'm like, okay, yeah, okay, yes, good point. Uh, corruption, uh, money, yes, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, everything else, every like everything, it's too, it's too black and white. It's too simple. It it is it it allows people to have. This is my theory. It allows people to have a place to put their anxious energy. Um, I now know the answer. I feel better. I feel like I have meaning because one of the most difficult things about becoming an adult, and this is what we see in a lot of uh, people that come in for therapy, not, not for just depression, but for other things, is the ability to tolerate ambiguity. And Mm. a lot of times as an adult, when you start really having abstract thought, which happens to most of us, and you live in a society which is so complicated and there's economic factors and you know education factors and government edicts and you know different messages and now we have access to this on the internet day and night we can we can watch videos where people explain things we could this is my favorite there's a subgenre of videos where people are reacting to other people's videos that are explaining the news so we have the news somebody <laughs> explains the news and then you have somebody reacting to that video 
what it's just like you if you don't have a good contextual <laughs> understanding of how information is spread and works you're going to be so confused at, yeah. at, at all of this and uh, so uh, so conspiracy theories to me are too reductionistic although you know they always have a point of truth uh, or a point of that seems true uh, and so i think one of the most difficult things is and this is this goes to the bottom up is that in a world where there's so many people trying to be the top dog, so to speak, and top downing everything? Hey, I'm welcome to my YouTube channel. I'm an expert on this. Uh, hey, the White House has their own YouTube channel. Hey, Joe Rogan's got his own podcast. But he's kicked out of YouTube. And hey, um, you know this podcast hates Joe Rogan, and this and Joe Rogan hates this <laughs> podcast. And Tom Beekbane's book is over here, and this other guy's got this book. And, and there's so much information. And I don't mean it, it's a good thing, but your average consumer. Is 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 they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed. It's, it's so, overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And 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 for me, I grew up with the internet wasn't in my life until I was in my early 20s. So I was able to evolve in the land before I had too much information. And yeah. I feel like the big that one of the tasks of our age is to be able to tolerate ambiguity and and tolerate and understand that there's lots of different viewpoints, all may have some valid points to them, and to be able to take that information. And not immediately have our nervous system go into polyvagal fight, flight, freeze, or collapse, and be able to contemplate what is the best path, best path of action based on where I am and what are my circumstances and what is my community around me. And I think, mm -hmm. unfortunately, what, we're, what we've seen during the pandemic is that, at least in the United States, we aren't too good at that. Um, and in the Western world, it's not oh, just the United States. Well, oh my gosh. I, I'm just speaking for me because I don't want to, I, I have a few friends in Canada and they're, you know, telling me how things well, are we're crazy in Canada. Than... I think it's even worse <laughs> in Australia. Okay. So, uh, but, uh, you know, the tolerating ambiguity is just, it's not there. It's immediate. Like you said, it's jumping to a tribal banner or people are having total melt meltdowns, mental breakdowns. Everything I know is wrong. And I, I'm telling you, and I'm so glad that people are reaching out for mental health help. I hope it's good help, but yeah. we're getting more calls than ever. And that's documented all over. So um, to mm -hmm. that to say, I, I don't know what I mean by that is we need a bottom-up approach. We need people to be able to say, I'm an individual. I have the right to learn from many different sources, and I need to figure out how to be a human, of a, a human being in my environment. To the, so that I don't just become a human consumer and a human consumer. And I'm being a completely hyperbolic. So just go with it for a second, but mm -hmm. just where I'm consuming all this information, but I don't know what to do with it. So I'm now paralyzed. I'm angry or I'm, uh, you know, uh, afraid all the time. I'm paralyzed. I don't do anything. I don't vote. I don't get involved in local politics. I don't try to make my world a better place. I'm angry, so then I go attack people that I think are making my world a worse place, or I'm afraid of everybody, and I'm, you know, giving money. So we're not in this sort of, you know, according to polyvagal, polyvagal theory, we're not in the lowest in the green pattern, where we're, we're in a community, we're exchanging ideas, we're having these discussions, we're tolerating that. Many people have different perspectives about what should be done. Um, we're getting into a world that is more... I guess on fire that people's nervous systems are on fire and what you're going to, and, and what you said is a melting point or breaking point. I said entropy because I think things are just slowly failing, uh, failing. Yeah. Uh, in I, a society. I, think, I think one, one of the sort of key steps is that people have to realize that, um, 
not everything can be categorized into yes and no, right or wrong, uh, this group good, that, that group bad. They, they, they've got to understand that there's tremendous complexity, even in simple questions. And, and just because an expert sort of says, well, this is good and that's bad, doesn't mean to say that that's actually the case and you've got to listen to this expert rather than another expert. The, the, the world is an endlessly complex place and, and um, no two particles are exactly the same because they can't be in the same place at the same time. Um, and so we just have, I think everyone can benefit from realizing that um, they don't have to take sides on a particular matter. They can just um, sort of relax and, and be more accepting of, of, of different perspectives um, and, and, and recognize that uh, trying to find a demon or, or someone to demonize is not going to solve any problems. Uh, it, it, it just will not. I mean, it'll, it'll just uh, lightly make a situation worse. I don't know if you're um, aware of um, the work of a fellow called, um, a professor called Matthias Desmet. It, it, it sort of ties into what we're talking about here, but at a societal level, um, he, he's a professor at Ghent University and he's uh, on the verge of um, publishing a book. And I, and I, I think it's got some fascinating uh, ideas that tie in with your polyvagal theory. It also has some interesting um, parallels with you know what magicians do and what happens when there's hypnosis and so on. And it, it's he, he uses that to talk about what's happening at a societal level. And and if um, if, you're, if you're not aware of that, I think it's worth looking into. I can explain a little bit more about it if you're interested. Yes, I'm very interested. Uh, please, yeah. What have you been learning from uh, Matthias Desmond? Well, I, I'm going to um, sort of bastardize what he says a little bit um, and, and sort of use my own language. But the, he, he says there's, there's four aspects that go into what he called mass formation. And, and when he says mass formation, he's sort of talking about a, a form of mass psychosis um, that happens you know, across societies. Psychosis is, a, is a, a, a harsh word, so that's why he uses mass formation, but... Um, but let's let's just say mass psychosis um, for, for for the sake of argument, and that mass psychosis might relate to uh, a, a sort of a, a perceived a perceived evil, um, and and it, it it arises because of what he calls free floating anxiety, and I I think yeah, in the West, particularly actually in the Midwest United States and you know, sort of areas that were previously industrial that have become de-industrialized, uh, there's a lot of insecurity, and particularly with young people who can't necessarily um, find rewarding blue-collar work. You know, they're either working in a, in a fast food restaurant or, you know, trying to get a job doing some computing thing. But but the, 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 the old... Um, ways of earning a living have been changing so massively that it's causing widespread uh, anxiety. In addition to that, you've got this lack of social connectedness. You know, we have social media, but for most people, particularly young people, it actually drives them apart. You know, you're, you're seeing these um, sort of exaggerated, retouched uh, images of, of your friends and other people. And, and rather than um, sort of, sort of bringing people together, 
it's like, oh my God. And then of course on Facebook, you, you get this massive polarization between uh, different ideas. You know, you, you're either thumbs up or you're thumbs down. You love it or you hate it. Um, so there's a lack of social connectedness that's been happening over the last uh, number of years. And I think it's now being made like 10 times worse with the, with the pandemic and the, the shutting down of many schools, uh, remote learning. So you've got those two things, anxiety, free-floating anxiety, lack of social connectedness, plus uh, there, um, there's been a breakdown of what you might call ways of sense-making. So a uh, hundred years ago, people would go to church, synagogue, temple, whatever, um, and that would provide some sort of collective way that people could structure their life and, and sing along together and, and, and uh, um, find sanity together, find togetherness. And that has been uh, breaking down recently. So you've got those three things, and it's, it's now being turned into a f- outrage and aggression against sort of various focal points, you know, whether it's racism or carbon dioxide or uh, unequal uh, distribution of wealth uh, or people who aren't vaccinated or, or whatever. And, and so, you know, the, the, these, you're getting tribalism um, that is just sort of running rampant through society. And, um, and it, it, it I, I, I mean, if you do a fact check now on mass psychosis, you'll find that I think AP um, and some of the wire services say it, it doesn't exist, which also points to an issue, um, you know, with our ability to, um, quote, understand what a, a fact is and what it isn't. But, um, but Matthias Desmet's ideas, I think, help us understand what we're observing around us increasingly these days uh, with the opioid crisis and and depression and I'm sure all of the things that you're uh, dealing with um, you know which is not part of my world thankfully but I'm I'm I would guess it's part of yours yes I mean we're seeing you know in the in the microcosm of the treatment room we see the macro of what's going on in society, kind of how people are reacting to it. And um, yes, the grand narratives and the, like you, you mentioned, like the worship places and, and, and coming together and, and even the community hall or the library, there is a disconnection with people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we talked about, I'm thinking the last episode about people in their silos, like the academia you know, the different parts of academia aren't collaborating for various reasons. You know, there's different Mm -hmm. silos of thought. And um, and, and oddly enough, you know, we still have the massive structures in the United States of government, uh, local and uh, regional and federal. And uh, so we're we're trying to navigate. Those systems are are continuing to exist, but other systems such as like you said like maybe a more straightforward job market uh that was mm-hmm. more predictable mm-hmm. um a, a gathering place for people that was more 
you know, I guess socially done and, and, uh, ritualistic and continuous. Mm -hmm. And, um, even I was thinking about this, you know, uh, people watch Netflix and, uh, different things like this, but the only things that people watch together now that I've not, not the only things, but some of the only things people watch together as a group are, are, are sports games and a new episode of something. Right. But oftentimes most people are watching different shows at different times where, you know, even when, when television was first coming out, it was a broadcast. You, you, at a certain time you did things. So things are all happening at different times. So there's an onus on the individual to try to make and find quote unquote, their people or people that they can be around and feel safe around and have conversations around. And I mean, safety in the most literal sense, like as in you're not being harmed or abused. You know, that's what I mean by that. Um, I don't mean disagreed with. Uh, And it's interesting because the, all of what you're saying is true. And, And so it's, for me, what I've seen is it seems like, People are lonely and they're trying to find like-minded people and they're trying to find the time to get together, but they don't often have a common meeting place, right? What, you know, what, if you don't, first of all, the younger people are saying, wow, alcohol is pretty unhealthy. Maybe we should just drink tea at like a minimal amount of alcohol and, or no alcohol. And, but you know, sodas. uh, Coca-Cola is very unhealthy. It's just sugar water with some carbonation. Maybe we should be drinking this uh, carbonated water with no sugar in it. Maybe and, and so, so what I'm saying is where's the gathering place? Should we go to the bar or, and then, you know, as you said, the ch- various churches are breaking up. I could go on about why I think they're dying. Um, yeah. I think that they're subject to the same issues that you're seeing in the larger governments and larger, very large businesses, which is we, they have forgotten their core values and they are trying to somehow manipulate you into giving them money and staying and it's become a mess, but we, but you're right. There was more predictability before, um, yeah. at least in the recent past, I'm sorry, I can the 20th century I yeah. don't know about before then probably less predictable, but, um, well, like way back, I mean, you would have gone to in England, the local yeah. pub or the local, um, g- gathering place, like local a, hall, a gathering place, local right. church, so, uh, or, or whatever. And I mean, so, we, yeah, we, those we, rhythms are are off even worse because of the pandemic. But it, it mm-hmm. people people want to belong to something. They want a tribe, and you'll even hear the word family, which is who are your your friends as a replacement for family. Like your blood relations are supposed supposedly supposed to be nice to you, and you have this nice relationship, but it doesn't always work out that way. That's why we're in business. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, how, where do we belong to? So the onus is really on the individual right now to find or create a community amongst massive breakdowns in older structures that seem to be leading to entropy. And I don't know where that brings us to, except that you really, as a person now, have to be aware of what are you doing? How are you showing up in the world? How are you managing your health? How are you managing your mental health? What impact are you having on those around you? And what type of work do you want to do? I mean, one thing that was interesting to me is this whole work conversation where you keep hearing nobody wants to work. And I don't want to get into what I think about that exactly, except that to say, I think that people are not just resigning work, they're reevaluating what work is and what yes. kind of work they want to do. And I think, especially right now, the, the, uh, the worker 
has a lot more say over, you know, uh, what they want to do. And part of that, I think, came from the pandemic, all of a sudden realizing they could work from home and be more productive in certain ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although I think that leads to another problem because I think we do need to go to the workplace. So I'm all over the place. I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I don't know what the answer is to this. I just think- no, I, I, I think, you know, maybe we can sort of tie this back into the, the bottom-up thing um, in that one's mental health and one's the meaning in one's life is sort of, brought about because of one's sort of day-to-day, well, minute-to-minute interactions with those around one and, and the groups one in, um, interacts with. And I know in my case, my, my life has changed massively over the last, who knows? I mean, I'm an old guy now, I'm 65. But um, it's, it's, it's changed massively over the last, let's say, 20, 25 years uh, in that I used to you know, drive to work, I used to have a large team of people. I used to drive to see clients, um, and and that that doesn't happen any anymore. I I, I now get a lot of uh, enjoyment from. I have to say, continue to, I, I I continue to get a lot of enjoyment from playing sports with people. I love playing tennis, and that um, I I think is very stabilizing. Um, you know, just sort of being on a court together, you don't necessarily need to uh, talk with each other, but but just the physical presence of others. And if you're playing doubles, you know, working together and, and having fun is is meaningful. But um, I I get a massive amount of enjoyment now from having um, sort of uh, online get-togethers with groups of people. And that's something that uh, I just absolutely never considered doing even two years ago um, but now twice a week or more uh, I get together with sort of meta sense making groups and of one sort or another um, and there's spaces where we can talk about controversial matters openly uh, and we're very tolerant of uh, different ways of looking at the world and and I and I've find that I derive a lot of um, stability from that because uh, I have to confess, you know, even in my household here with my wife, I I find it very difficult to talk about, for instance, vaccines uh, or or political matters. We don't see things the same way. And so I I have to find um, other, you know, groups that enable me to uh, express myself openly. And, and And I think um in, in in many years gone by that wasn't necessary because one would have been getting together with people at the local diner or at the local court or church or um local organizations that have to 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 a large degree disappeared now yes it's uh it's a strange world out there i think we're right now in the process of adapting in multiple ways at once, which I think is quite confusing. Um, you know, we've, we're adapting to more online if there's less availability of institutions or organizations or cafes out there to all meet in. Um, and at the same time, I also see there's a draw, and, and I don't know if you've seen this as much, but as the restrictions let up in terms of uh, lockdowns, in uh, in where I was in Michigan for most of the year, um, mm-hmm. people were just 
aching to get in close quarters again with each other mm-hmm. concerts mm-hmm. and uh things like that and the demand for i know that online therapy is of course burgeoning industry but people really really wanted the in person if possible you know as long as they weren't feeling at risk um yeah. they just wanted to come in i mean we got more calls every day the first answer first uh starting in june was do you do in person counseling that's the first thing they ask. Yes, we really? do. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I feel like while it, it's it's sort of that postmodern weird situation we're in because we've now, I mean, I, I do most of my interviews over Zoom like this, but at the same time, people are craving that intimacy or that co-regulation or that community feeling of, of being around others as well. And I think, I mean, I'm not going to say the number one factor, but one of the major factors I think that hurt people's mental health in was the isolation. Isolation seems to make everything worse because Absolutely. we're pod animals. We're pod animals. We need other animals to regulate, help us regulate. Um, people adopted pa- uh, cats and dogs and all sorts of pets during the pandemic to help them regulate their system. Um, yeah. This takes us back to sort of this whole bottom-up sort of biology way of looking at the world. Um, we we have tended uh, in the academic world to view communication as, as words written and spoken, but 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 if you recognise that um, the mechanisms that are at work in our in our neural systems have, have been in play for 70, 100, 200 million years, I mean, you know, pick a spot. But, but certainly amongst sort of mammals um, for, for tens of millions of years, not hundreds, um, th- th- those mechanisms don't, don't work with, with words. They, they work with sort of physical presence, smell and physical presence. And, and, and that's why uh, there's this, this hollowness in people's lives when they're not physically getting together. Um, I mean, certainly, I think it's true that for nearly everyone, actual physical touch is is important. And 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 you know, if you're if you're single and you never touch anyone, or or you're living alone and you never touch anyone, there's something missing. We we need we need physical touch, uh, and it, it it it's tremendously therapeutic. And and there's a lack of um, acknowledgement that that's a legitimate need, uh, in my view. Uh, and, 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 and of course, that sort of plays into the whole realm of, of sexual health. I mean, that is such an important um, aspect of uh, stable relationships in, in many cases. Yes. Um, I think the field of psychology will agree with you. Uh, so if you start reading stuff from our field, we're all about physical touch, proximity, sexual health. If those factors aren't there, it, they're similar to um, having a slow killing disease. I mean, mm-hmm. a, slow, a slow working disease. If you mm-hmm. if you're unhealthy in any any category, we call it biopsychosocial, uh, sexual, spiritual aspect because we see mm-hmm. meaning. For humans, meaning is very important and having that meaning. And so I think a lot of people are suffering right now. Um, you know, it's interesting you say that, but like, think about this. I've heard people say this to me and and have seen it in the movies, that one of the most romantic beginnings of something is the two things, either looking into someone's eyes and not saying anything, 
and knowing mm-hmm. something implicit or feeling something implicit mm-hmm. or holding someone's hand. And there, but unless we're climbing a bridge at like some sort of climbing park, there's not really that many reasons logically to hold someone's hand other than we need it. Right. And yeah. why, why, why would I rather if, if given the chance, a choice today, I'm in Arizona right now, so it's nice outside. And so if I so choose, I can go to an outdoor cafe or whatever and see a friend. And if, and, and even if they, uh, you know, had some sort of sickness, I could sit six feet away from them, whatever, you know, that I don't want to get into that whole set, that whole <laughs> line of thinking. But what I'm saying is I have the opportunity, uh, if they said, Hey, do you want to, you know, have coffee today on zoom? Or, uh, do you want to meet up at this cafe over here? I'd say, well, of course I want to meet you at the cafe because there's so much richness in just being in someone's presence. And if you had said to me, Tom, do, you know, you're in Toronto and I'm in Arizona right now. Hey, do you want to do this podcast over the phone and just record it? I would say, no, 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 no. I want to see your, I want a video. I want to look at you. You know, I want to see your body. Yeah. And even though you, you know, I'm a person who must have those little fidget things around because I have a lot of excess energy when I sit and you might, you know, have noticed that. I, I really do enjoy seeing, you know, your face and your reactions because that gives me so much more information and inspires me more than if I just heard your voice on the on the telephone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wish um sort of a when I was young, I had um known more about the importance of um of being with people and also knowing that. Um, talking isn't about looking smart uh, or, or you're, you know trying to say something that's um, sort of super intelligent. Um, just sort of small talk um, is therapeutic, and 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 just um, sort of learning to use words in the same way. Um, I, I mean, I, I learned a new word just now, family. I've never heard of that. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to pretend that I, I knew it all along, but but uh, dis- discovering words um, and and using them in new ways is is part of what helps bring people together. And and I th- I think if I'd been taught that, I think I would have been more successful. Let's say in business. I mean, you know, I've got nothing to complain about. Um, but I, I wish I'd known that. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. It, it's, I'm glad you're, it's very nice to hear you talk about, you know, your personal revelations from this. And I, I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm younger than you, but I, I'm still learning that. I mean, I was taught the exact opposite. I was taught that, you know, it's about what you say, not as much as what you say it. It's about what you believe less about what you do. I mean, these are the institutions I was raised in. And I, and I was like, you know, I, you know, go off to university and it's, it's a little bit, it's not as bad because they tell you, you know, live by the syllabus and it's a little bit more your responsibility, but you know, still the idea was who knows the most is the best and mm-hmm. not who lives the best way <laughs> might, and, and then shares yeah. that might actually be, uh, I'm not trying to rank, but possibly better for the species. You know? Yeah. And who listens, who listens uh, better? Yes. I, 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 I mean, in certain segments, uh, Joe Rogan is is vilified. But um, two things you notice about Joe Rogan: he's he's very good at listening and hearing what people say, which is very unusual. And also, as far as I'm aware, he doesn't lie. You know, he he he's 
he's forthright. And, um, and, and it doesn't take a whole lot of um, going to school to learn those things. Uh, you, you, you know, if you appreciate the value of listening, uh, it can enrich every relationship, in my view. Um, and of course, like trying not to lie is, um, you know, or at least trying to be honest um, helps uh, bring people together. I agree. And it's these, I, I love that we're, we're kind of ending on this bottom up. It's these little things we can work on in ourselves and with those around us. And okay. The other day I had this discussion with my wife. We were talk we were walking around here, uh, at night with our dog and we were, ju- we were talking about the news and how she said something about the news. And I said, Oh gosh, I don't want to hear that. Can we wait till Friday? Um, that's my news reading day. And, and then I, <laughs> and then I said, wait a minute. You know, and that's not totally true, but I, I try to not read it every day. And I, and I said, what if, and this is of course a fantasy. I said, what if we could control and we, at all of the, all of the news channels, unless there was an earthquake, uh, unless there was an earthquake or a fire or, or, or a military attack that all the news <laughs> people went on like a nice little vacation and got to write these like longer stories and all of the public, we couldn't, he, it was just blackness on the TV. Turn on CNN, black. Fox News, black. MSNBC, black. There was nothing. Like, we'll be back on Friday at 3 p.m., right? And, and we're like, what's going on? It's like, don't worry. If there's a hurricane, a weather event, or a military attack, we'll let you know. And I said, I wonder how people's mental health would be if they could only consume the news one or two days a week. And that the news anchors themselves got some rest because, you know, they're, they're caking on makeup because they've never slept, you know, in years. And <laughs> they're just, you know keyed up and upset and frustrated about everything they're hearing that's terrible. And they got to use, they get to do one pet story a week, you know, and the rest of it was just whatever. And of course it's a total fantasy, but you know, you think well, about. But you say it's a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course it, it is a fantasy that the folks at CNN and New York times and MSNBC and, and BBC and so on, you know, they're not going to go away for six days a week. No, but, but, uh, but, but in my case, um, I used to be a voracious uh, consumer of news. I, I used to read the newspaper from front to back every day. Um, and, I, and I used to you know, watch the evening news or, and I had the radio on, listening to the news. I, I, loved, I loved the news and I, I, uh, and I appreciated what, knowing what was going on. I have to make a confession, over the last two years... I have not watched the news once. I have not switched on the TV in the last two years, from the time I started writing my book, which was two years ago. Um, I just don't do it. Uh, I, don't, uh, I, don't, I don't have it on a TV screen, let's say in the kitchen, you know, with the, with the feed along the bottom. I, I, ne- I never look at it. What I do is um, I get my news from newsletters and Substack, and and it's and, and I subscribe to people who actually think deeply about subjects rather than the the, the dribble that we're fed uh, every day, which is um, on the whole really um, a poor, poorly thought out and and highly superficial. Uh, and and most of the news these days, unfortunately, is just a regurgitation of press releases from government and politicians and companies. So in my, or, or someone's um, reporting on what they've seen on their Twitter feed. 
it, it has, in my view, it has no value at all. And, and, and I think it's one of the reasons I'm feeling fairly good about, about life, you know, and I'd recommend it to everyone. I actually think that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, I've always joked that I, I've taken major news fast. And I don't watch the news. I only read articles here or there that seem yeah. to be a little bit longer in duration. But I, um, I I always joked about this. I said, if if for some reason I needed to know what was going on, I'm sure the local government would intera- interact with my iPhone and send me <laughs> some sort of buzzing alert and or everyone I know would call me. So it's all, you know, that's the best part about knowing people is they will, they will tell you, oh my gosh, be careful. You know, there's a, there's a UFO above your apartment. It's, you know, it, it's- Well, yeah, it's, well it's, you just feel the earthquake. You, you think, oh, okay, well, there's an earthquake. Right. Or, something about that. Right, or there is an earthquake. I feel it, or there's a fire, <laughs> I see it, right? So it's like, you know, that that's an interesting, uh, interesting part about this. And, and, and hearing about the news and what you said, and I always just call it the bad news. It's mostly just bad news and, and like what you said, press releases. And, and I've been in the whole thing where, you know, they call you and they say, oh, you, we really enjoy counseling. We'd like to give you a segment on our show. I said, oh, really? Okay, I'd love to come on and talk for half an hour. Oh, no, no, it's two minutes. Oh, and it's $500. Wait, what? You know, that, <laughs> what is that pay to play? So now recently I was interviewed by a local news station. They gave me four minutes and it was free and it was to help the public. It was because of the mental health thing. So that was nice. But again, uh-huh. it was, it was a short, like it was very, like you said, superficial. I could, I couldn't explain what we do in four minutes, but I tried. So anyway, with that being said, I think for people that want to delve deeper into um, how things work different ways to view the world, expanding your horizons. I have to say, I've read most of your book. I'm still in the last few chapters because it's <laughs> a really rich book, a really, really rich book. And I love Thank it. You. Um, but it, it, it is definitely like one of those books where you you almost want to read a chapter twice. Um, but I, I recommend it to people. So How to Understand Everything, Consilience, A New Way to See the World by Tom Beekbain. And then, uh, yeah, and I mean sounds like you're open to people contacting you and, and, and I, I love it when people send me emails and, and, um, you know, we get on Twitter spaces or clubhouse. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate, uh, when people want to discuss the ideas. Uh, I, I really love it when, when some of the ideas actually help, uh, people f- figure out their aspects of their job or their life. And, um, I mean, I, I did write the book because I, I, I think if we understand ourselves better as human beings, you know, as, as biological creatures, we're more likely to end up in a good place, building a society that our kids are going to um, thrive in. Uh, I, I think that many of the, the trends that are uh, occurring in society right now are taking us in the wrong direction and, and our children are not going to be as lucky as, let's say, I was uh, growing up. And, and, and so I, I've written the book with a view that um, we, we need to be more truthful about our own selves and the way our neural systems work. When we're not nearly as smart as we think we are so while the book is called how to understand everything it, it's really about uh, to use a long word epistemological humility it's about humility about what we um know and about how much we don't know 
And that is the key point. I think one of the keys to my personal philosophy is understanding how little I know. And when somebody asks me a question, I could give them information, but there's so much I don't know, and I'm willing to learn, and I want to learn, and there's so many different ways and things to learn. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, and I think humility is, is well needed in this day and age. And so I think um, it starts right now with anyone listening to this podcast, uh, starts with you. And I think um, learning new things and learning new ways of approaching the world will help. And I've certainly benefited from uh, talking with you, Tom, and also, you know, reading your, reading your book. And I appreciate uh, your contribution. Thanks so much, Paul. It's been fun. have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Krauss. I very much have enjoyed my dialogues with Tom Beekbane. He has a very interesting way of looking at the world, and I believe he likes to look at so many different perspectives. It's very refreshing. So I really encourage you to check out his book. It was just a tremendous uh, book, one of the most surprising books I've read in a while. As I mentioned earlier, I am now a full EMDR, International Association Consultant, and I can provide the training post your EMDR training, about 20 hours on your way to become EMDRIA certified. You can join a group online, or we could talk about individual appointments as well. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it, or leave us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy and you're looking for some great advanced trainings, check out EMDR Training Solutions and register today. I have a link in the show notes and they have given me a code, the word intentional. And if you use that at checkout, you will get $100 off of their cost. They are one of the most affordable trainings on the market. And in fact, I know a lot of the people that have worked for them and they are fantastic trainers. I highly recommend them. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in Grand Rapids at the Health for Life Grand Rapids and Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting our website, www.healthforlifegr.com. You can also participate in telehealth therapy if that is what you are looking for if you are in the state of Michigan. You can also give our front desk a call at 616-200-4433. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Kraust and his guest, and while these are based upon literature and their experience in their respective fields, these should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling down, stressed out, or overwhelmed? Text the word Steve, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. 
Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your home while knowing that a portion of the proceeds support local brick-and-mortar bookstores in your area. And bookstores are a very important part of any community as there's a lot of great events that can happen there. If you are a counselor and you are not a member of a professional association, I highly recommend it. Two of the organizations that I'm a member of are the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association and the Arizona Counselors Association, as well as the national organizations. In this time of political uncertainty and in this time of stress, more and more people are needing mental health coverage, and quite frankly, we don't have enough um, excellent counselors who are trained and a lot of therapists can't even take Medicare due to archaic laws from the 1970s. So please write your senators to have licensed professional counselors be able to take Medicare to help our seniors. And please just get involved. Uh, It's so easy to just think somebody else is going to do it. But if everybody thinks that, then nothing gets done or certain people's agendas get done that most of us won't be pleased with. All right. Thanks for listening. Take care now and have a safe and peaceful week. Thank you.